Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is uh, Norman Mbazima. Norman and I come a long way. Uh, he's a Zambian with a long track record and is an executive of mining companies, mainly in the Anglo-American group stable. First of all, he was the CEO of Coal and then later CEO of Kumba, the iron ore division. Uh, his last assignment was uh, deputy chair of uh, the South African group. And now he chairs in a non-executive capacity, uh, Anglo Platinum. Norman, welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. So you see, uh, I thought that uh, we should try and uh, pick your brain on this issue of relations between investors and host government. So I guess I have to just ask, perhaps at the risk of being obvious, why are relations between mining companies and host governments in uh, the, your industry so important? Oh, they're extremely important. Our industry is uh, one where large sums of money are involved for a very long time. Um, and to make money out of that, you need fairly stable relationships and fairly stable regimes in terms of uh, uh, fiscal regimes and regulatory regimes and, and things of that nature. So <clears throat> those kind of relations are crucial to how we operate. At the same time, the, the countries want to get good benefits out of the minerals that are in their ground in their soil. And so again, to make those two things work together, the relationships are crucial. So uh, you, you speak about the long term. I, I mean, to you and I who are in, uh, or have been in the industry, that may sound obvious. You know, why are the relationships long term in the first instance? Look, if I, were, if I was running a supermarket, I can go and build a supermarket in three months and it's, it's done. And I can put my goods in there and uh, start selling uh, within the next four or five months, it's up and running. And by the way, if I don't like it very much in, in probably weeks rather than months, I can pack up everything in trucks and leave. If you're going to do a, a mine, if you're going to build a mine, if you're going to explore and then finish exploring and then do feasibility studies, and then after feasibility studies, start to build a mine and, and all that whole period will take you years, if not more, if not 10 years to get to a time when you're now producing. And then you probably be producing for 40 or 50 years out of that mine uh, before, it's, before it's exhausted and it's time to, to close it. So then the kind of timescales that are involved in are really quite lengthy. Sure. So, so what you're saying is that there's a series of processes that not yeah. only precede the mining process itself, but by definition, those processes take long. And then there is the actual mining itself. And, and when you combine all that, uh, it means that you are exposed to a long period in which you are interacting with government and anything can change. And so it's important that the, the relationships over which those uh, various uh, processes take place is conducive to investment. Uh, and, and in any case, to your point, it's not as if you can just, 
you know, take your mind and go somewhere. That is but, correct. That is absolutely correct. So, but this must mean, doesn't it, Norman, that in a way, mining companies are quite vulnerable to that relationship because, you know, once you put boots on the ground, uh, that makes the investor vulnerable to any souring of relationships. So what do good relationships that can avoid that outcome look like? What characterizes a good relationship between mining companies and host governments? The biggest thing I think that characterizes good relationships is that the people on either side of that relationship have um, a common understanding of what is supposed to happen, the common understanding of what values derived from, from this activity and the common understanding on, on how that value uh, can be divided up between the various parties so that all of them get what they consider to be a, a, a fair share. <clears throat> Once you have this common understanding, it means that you can, you can hold each other to account with what you're doing and what you're not doing, etc. Uh, but often there's quite a bit of suspicion uh, and people change and so forth, and that brings uh, issues in those relationships, Sheila. Sure. So, I mean, isn't it fair, though, to say that whether it is in the space of regulation, whether it's in the space of governments, change is the only constant. So, so it begs the question then, uh, how do investors, how do companies ensure that despite that change, those, that perception of value uh, and, and you know, that perception of what a good relationship like does not change, or if it changes, that it changes in an aligned way? It's all about engagement. It's all about relationships. It's all about knowing who the other party is and what they would like to do and being able to educate is perhaps a, a, a condescending term, but being able to apprise people what you're doing, why you're doing it, where you're going, what is expected to come out of that, so that everybody is in the same knowledge base about those things and therefore expectations are managed. Hmm. I like your reference to expectations and management uh, because I, I, my experience is that some of the most difficult things in relationships is when one, expectations are not met, two, uh, when the expectations themselves are not uh, realistic. So meeting expectations is very much in the control of mining companies because you are sighted of them. Uh, you make an, a, a commitment to meet them and you can manage that. But where expectations are not exactly realistic, you know, how do you manage unrealistic expectations, Norman? I think that is the, the, the difficult part of the mining uh, value chain is to manage those expectations when they are unrealistic. Mining uh, <clears throat> has lots of values involved that are really quite big, that are bigger than most people will meet in their daily lives, whether those people are employees, whether they are government people or whatever it is. So to get those expectations to be realistic in the face of such 
big values can, can be a challenge. So one has to explain over and over again, if I get $100 from um, mining, how is that gonna be divided up and, and, and why? And make that explanation uh, to a level where we can all work with it, whether we're from the mining uh, company, whether from government or whether from communities, all the stakeholders need to be able to be there. And it's really about engagement and explaining over and over and over again what you're doing, why you are doing it, why values are the way they are, and get people to be comfortable with those figures. That's what we do. So, so, so really, the, there's a level at which uh, the mining industry has a, a, a responsibility to ensure the stakeholders understand and they can go inside uh, the mining environment and appreciate what happens. And, and, and I, I think that is fair, but what happens uh, then, Norman, when mining companies to do, try, attempt to do that, but do so in a space in which there's no trust? Because it's all very well you saying, uh, it's important that there is this understanding, but who is going to be that trusted party whose voice can be taken for granted? That is a very good question. Um, many of the governments um, don't trust mining companies and quite often uh, ideology is involved. The whole question of capitalism is involved. The whole question of who is a, uh, somebody who just wants to make a profit here and doesn't care about the country or the people or whatever. Those things tend to get in the way of, um, of, of the trust relationship. And it really behoves the individuals of that mining company uh, building that trust by doing exactly that, ex ex explaining over and over again what they're doing and then sticking to what they have said and showing people that they are delivering on the promises that they have made. Or if there's a change in that promise, explaining why there's a, there's a need for the change in the promise so that people grow to trust what you're saying, uh, but have the um, ability to verify it as well, and they should do so. Hmm. So, you know, you, you've made mention of several things that may lead to trust, some just the experience, some, you know, uh, an inherent distrust of uh, capitalism and all things that, uh, you know, are associated with that. But there's also something else, I suppose, that uh, might make managing those relationships uh, difficult. And that's for multinationals that do and conduct business in different parts of the world. You've worked for multinationals with interests in Africa, Latin America, Europe, and others. How do you strike the balance? I mean, do, do multinationals manage uh, globally or do they manage locally? They need to do both. Uh, if you are in a South American country and you're in, in an African country, what you do in that country, in one country, is head almost within minutes uh, in the other country and say, oh, is this what this company does when it gets to you? Um, so, so what you do in both countries is very important because it will travel. 
Uh, at the same time, you've got to say, I'm in Zambia. And what, does Zamb what are the different things that Zambia likes that are very different from Chile or Brazil or, or whatever? And how do I deal with those things? And therefore, you have to be both international and local in order to balance the thing. Mm. Uh, I'm intrigued. We, we've talked about trust. I want to go back to trust. We've said governments okay. don't trust. Do multinationals trust <clears throat> governments? Multinationals have to trust government even to get into a country. You've got to say, what is this country? What does it look like, et cetera, et cetera. So we start off uh, on the basis of, of, of trust. That trust can become quite difficult, mostly because governments have got the power to change laws by going to parliament and doing so on. Sometimes just by um, a, a piece of paper that is promulgated in the government gazette and, and then that becomes law. And, and that law can, can change. And when it changes uh, in a manner that is prejudicial to the interests of investors, then that trust is lost, um, especially when there hasn't been much in the way of uh, discussion beforehand about this, what we're going to do, and this is why, and what are your views, et cetera, et cetera. That's generally speaking what uh, destroys trust. And of course, trust can be destroyed by things like corruption, whether it's on the part of the of, of government officials or on the part of the uh, investors themselves, those things destroy uh, trust. So again, I go back to saying we have expectations, we need to be able to explain what we're doing and why and manage those expectations. And then in that kind of climate, trust develops. Hmm. So uh, let, let's look at uh, relationships also from uh, a different perspective. So we know very well that companies have uh, internal uh, corporate cultures based on sometimes you know, stated values and ethics, but also sometimes based on just the personalities of those who lead the companies. They, they tend to permeate and translate into some kind of culture. But we also know that some cultures are almost regionalized. We know how the Americans conduct business generically. We know mm -hmm. how the Europeans, we know how the Chinese. How does this, when you are a country and you are managing uh, investor relations and you're confronted with these different corporate cultures, how do you stabilize the environment such that you also create a, the appearance of a level playing field? Yeah. You cannot run a company properly unless you develop a culture that permeates that company and makes people do the right thing even when others are not looking. And, and that is that culture thing that, that works. Now, generally speaking, the cultures and values of uh, the various companies are good cultures and values. They are written. You can look at them and you can engage with them. You can ask uh, people about them. So they're generally pointing you in the right direction. They get the companies to do what the, is the right thing. So people who engage with those companies then have to say, is this the kind of company that we would like in our country? Is this the kind of company that would 
uh, entrust our minerals extraction to, uh, what do they do, how do they do it, etc. We've seen lots of companies being cited in the press for doing bad things, and we've seen lots of companies being cited for doing good things. You must say, is this company likely to do the right thing by, by my country? And that is the way that people should engage with them. Hmm. So, so here, I guess you could argue that governments have the advantage of right of first refusal because they are the ones that are going to say, yes, we will grant you an exploration license. And, and therefore right. the, the, gov the position of governments is strong here. But mining companies on the other hand must go where geology goes. So th does this suggest then that uh, contrary to perceptions that perhaps multinationals have the upper hand, that the reality is that governments have the upper hand? In essence, the, the countries must have their upper hand. It is their country. It is their copper or cobalt or PGMs or, or, or whatever. It belongs to that country and people of that country must benefit with it. That's number one. Number two, they're, they're, they're sovereign. None of the companies coming there are sovereign. So they have the ability, as I said earlier, on to make laws and regulations that suit what they want to do. And therefore they have, again, have got an upper hand. And they're welcoming a stranger into their country to do very specific things. And therefore they are the host rather than the, uh, the mining company, which is the visitor. And, and, and I think that's a very good way of looking at the, the, the two entities and how they should interact with each other. Hmm. The, uh, I mean, if I were to ask you, you conducted a lot of business in Southern Africa, South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, and uh, of course, through the platinum, um, albeit indirectly in Zimbabwe. Yes. I mean, how would you describe the state of uh, relations between investors in mining and these governments, whether collectively or individually? You know, if you were to say, this is what I see, you know, what is that state? I think you got to look back in history and say most of the countries that you've mentioned have got uh, some genesis in policies and ideologies that are sort of socialist, et cetera, et cetera, and well-meaning, by the way. But those policies just by themselves tended to say you should distrust, distrust mining companies coming in here. They're, they're profit-oriented, and uh, therefore they cannot have any, anything good that they want to do for this country. Um, and, and, and over time, uh, will prove that, especially the bigger mining companies who have uh, multinational operations and have to really behave in order for their business model to work in all the countries, they have been able to deliver some value uh, to the various um, countries. Uh, and, and therefore relationships have over time started to improve. But we still have the smaller um, uh, companies that have to be significantly more nimble. And they're of a mixed bag of some that 
have been so driven by wanting to make a profit that they have not done as well as they should have been those, in those countries and left a bad record, and of others that have done really well. So the relationships have continued to be soared by the things that uh, the countries see happening uh, in their countries. I think that most of those countries have gone beyond the original ideology to say, okay, we've had experiences now. What is it that we need to do? What is it that we need to act? How do we need to have these relationships going forward in order to bring the best benefits to our country and our people? And I think those relationships have started to improve as a result. Hmm. So you and I are citizens of Southern Africa and we are, aren't we, the generation of post-independence, uh, post-liberation movement. I mean, I sometimes feel that governments themselves struggle to balance uh, what I've called political rhetoric, which is sometimes leans towards making false promises to the public and the genuine, honest conversations that they have with multinationals about what is realistic. How well do you think Southern Africa has transisted from that, if you wish, uh, liberation, independence rhetoric to governments administering affairs of state with a view to champion economic growth uh, based on mining? Uh, do we strike the right balance or are we still somewhat beholden to our past? We are still somewhat beholden to our past and we've got some way to go. Um, tech, tax tech, for example, how much tax is the mining industry paying? And is that an appropriate amount to pay? Um, it's almost always they're not paying enough. Um, the, something is happening, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in most of the countries that we're talking about, we actually produce the statistics from the revenue authorities as to how much tax has been received from the mining industry. And generally speaking, it's a large amount of money. I was very pleased in South Africa, for example, recently that uh, the politicians have been acknowledging that the mining industry has been very profitable in the last year and a bit and they have paid significant amounts of taxes, which have enabled uh, the fiscals to have a little bit more room to uh, help the poorer people in our society uh, with, with uh, assistance from the government. I think that's a first, and it's a very good first uh, to, to, to go on. But even then about expecting in the future, um, mining companies are very clear plans about what they're going to produce next year or the year after. And, and, and if you plug in this price or the other price, we know what kind of profitability we can have. Analysts do that all the time. But to bring that back into, oh, this is our expectation of uh, revenue from the mining industry for next year, and it's okay, or it's not okay, or this is what's happening, is not something that generally gets fed back to the public. And I think it would be helpful if it was. Yeah, you, you're talking about uh, the resource management plans and the budgets for, from mining that essentially as a miner, you know 
within uh, reason for the next five to 10 years, what you're going to extract, you know what the value is and based on price projection, you, you know, governments are cited on this and they can estimate and, and, and it, it shouldn't come as a surprise how much uh, tax they're able to, uh, you know, receive. But Correct. is it that the challenge then? I mean, you, you, you don't have to explicitly say that I'm now talking about resource management plans. I, I get it yeah. when you speak to me, but that's because I, I, I am in the industry. Not everybody is. Isn't that part of the problem then for both governments and uh, mining companies, how to translate this complexity in a way that it doesn't sound like there they go again with their monkey tricking, speaking a language we don't understand. How do we take this complexity first and bundle it for governments, then then equip them with the ability themselves to just speak a language that Joe Brooks understands? Isn't this really part of the problem of the absence of trust and the, the, the inability of the public to comfortably take either government or uh, mining companies wait for it? That, that's a very good question. I've often said to people that work with me that when you're going to the, speak to a board of directors, pretend that each member of the board is a child of six. A child of Jesus, six understands. Uh, uh, Jesus, no, man. <laughs> A child of six understands perfectly what you are saying and where you want to go and what you want to do and what decisions are to be made, provided you keep it simple. When you make it very complex, then the child of six is lost and you never touch them again. It's a metaphor that I use, but that applies to anyone, actually. Sometimes simplicity helps. Um, Instead of saying I've got a resource plan and it's got a model and it's got a DCF and it's got whatever, I said, we have sat down and looked at the plans of this company. We think that they will be able to produce X, Y, and Z in terms of uh, uh, quantities. And we think in that process, it will be able to produce X, Y, and Z in terms of revenue for the fiscals. And we have interrogated with it and we think it's appropriate. In other words, it's not uh, somehow shortchanging the, the country. And therefore, when it, we do receive it, we think it's an appropriate amount. And if something goes wrong, we should be able to explain why. But hey, I'm not a politician, so I don't understand what happens in the, in, in, in the political discourse between politicians and the public. But I think it would be good if everybody was in the same boat. True. I, I, I must say that, I mean, it's, 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 uh, you're right about um, the, the publics and the government's duty to break down things. But I, I think it, it, the same can be said for mining companies. Look. Uh, Norman, not everybody is a financial accountant. I mean, isn't it about time in the interest of building trust uh, yeah. that mining companies rethink the way they report the public in financial terms? We, we now have the report to stakeholders, but that deals really with sustainability issues. But people worry about the money. People inherently are saying, Norman, show me the money. But you know, over and over again, mining companies and other companies, to be fair, 
uh, comply with accounting standards and financial reporting standards that really just speak to accountants and nobody else. This seems to me like uh, an own goal in a space in which mining companies are already not trusted. How difficult can it be for you, intelligent uh, you know, investors, accountants, engineers to come up with you know, a, a, a financial reporting process for a six-year-old to your own ways? Um, I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> the reporting of our activities in the past has been geared towards uh, international financial reporting standards, et cetera, et cetera. And even when we go and report to shareholders and to do our roadshows, they have been geared to analysts and uh, 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 people who understand figures at that level. I'm very pleased to say that of late, we have seen improvements in the reporting to, to, to the public and especially to the communities in the sense of being able to say, what are we doing and how does it help? And especially this value added statement that I talked about earlier that says, for every hundred rand or hundred kwacha or hundred US dollars that we have earned in revenue, where has it gone to? and be able to explain that X amount has gone to suppliers in the local industry, X amount has gone to uh, providers of energy, X amount has gone to uh, buying new equipment, X amount has gone to employees, and X amount has gone to shareholders in the form of dividends. I like that statement because I think it's a lot easier to explain to a multitude of um, stakeholders with that one statement what's going on, in addition to talking about what we're doing in the communities. I think that statement, which is now more and more coming to the fore, which explains that this year we've, we've given the fiscus X, Y, and Z in terms of taxes, et cetera, in addition to all the other things, I think then says, this is who's getting what, and we can all talk about is that a fair share or isn't it? Mm -hmm. Talking about, uh, you know, breaking it down, you, you also talk about the expectations of different people. Isn't this a, one of the challenges, Norman, that, of course, we, we say here the public, but the public itself is, is very diverse. The elites in our part of the world think that they ought to have uh, equity in these mining companies. Uh, some want you to list uh, in the stock market so they can buy shares. And then you have uh, the communities. They have their own expectations. Isn't this part of the problem that there really is only one cake? Each uh, looks to it to have different ingredients and each looks to the cake to be shared out in a particular way. I mean, do we have a sense now, based on the notion of the social license to operate, where we place these various entities in terms of the hierarchy of the key stakeholders for a mining company? I think that's a very important aspect that you're talking about. There's a lot of uh, emotions uh, that go towards owning equity and being an, an owner of a mining company in that sense. 
in many cases, there isn't the understanding that being an equity uh, shareholder means that you are the last in line uh, mm -hmm. to get part of that hundred. And that if others have gotten so much that there isn't any profit left out of that hundred, you will get nothing. Mm. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, sometimes it's difficult to explain that in order to get equity, you're going to put in money. That's basically what happens. You've got to put in something um, mm -hmm. to become an owner of something. And therefore, this issue of availability of capital and therefore what capital are you using to get your equity is another issue that people uh, struggle with. In the end, if we take that schedule that I was talking about, we can discuss with various stakeholders and say, as employees, isn't it appropriate that the fact that you get a salary and you get a production bonus and you get leave days and you get whatever it is, ends up in this, um, this piece of the cake is what you then have. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? How can we then move and say you need to get a dividend as a shareholder? How do we move that? And does that give you more value or less value or whatever? And, and those conversations are really quite interesting. And I've had lots of them uh, over my career, especially with employees and, and communities. They are very interesting uh, conversations. They then allow people to be in the know, as I said, and to be able to say, I'm cool with uh, this piece of the cake because I know how how it is arrived at, and I know how it stands relative to the other pieces of the cake and how what people get. Um, so in times of uh, plenty, you find that shareholders are getting really quite good returns, and in times of difficulties, they are getting nothing. Is that a volatility that an employee should have, or is that a volatility that a community would, would be acceptable for a community not to get anything at all in a given year because we are not being profitable? Generally speaking, not. So that conversation is an interesting one and is best discussed around that value added statement. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, you, you've gotten into the weeds uh, <laughs> at the risk of talking to yourself. Basically what okay. you're saying is that in the uh, fiscal regime of mining companies, there's a hierarchy. The hierarchy is that the government comes first, first with the royalty, and then uh, corporate tax if there's any to levy. And only then do the shareholders uh, get the dividends. That's the pecking order in most cases. And there'll be other forms of tax in between depending, but generally that's the structure. And, and in many ways, uh, those who advocate for shareholding ought to do it in the full understanding they will come last because they, they are the risk takers, uh, if you see what I mean. And, and right. so, you know, rushing off uh, to want to have shares in the assumption that you're going to get a dividend, you could be very disappointed. And, and to be fair, uh, the 81 cents to the dollar in favor of the Busana government with DBS comes from that because DBS only has the dividend. The government has royalty, corporate tax and withholding tax and whatever else. The result of which is that the math favors the, the, the country. But, but these are some of the more basic things that uh, I think folks perhaps need to understand 
before we rush for uh, communities should have shares because you could lump by a whole community with the liability of equity, even if it comes on a free credit basis. And they yeah. could wait a long time uh, before they get a uh, dividend. And then you could have a real fallout because then they will say, you said we, we have shares, we've waited here, we've never received any money because the assumption is that if you have shares, you get money. Nothing could be further from the truth, isn't it, Norman? That, that's absolutely right. I think you and I should go and preach to a, to a class full of six-year-olds. We'll do well. Uh, <laughs> well we, we, we might save the next generation, even if we couldn't save, save uh, uh, ourselves. Here's a, a, a last uh, question uh, for you, Norman. I mean, hmm. regardless of what we say, about Southern Africa or Africa being rich in minerals. We don't really see a significant flow of investment in exploration. In your observation, how much of that has to do with relationships that are not healthy enough uh, to have traction with respect to attracting investment? And what does that tell us about the future of mining in the region potentially? Mining starts with exploration. If you don't find the minerals and uh, where they are and where they're located and, and so forth, you'll never be able to mine. That's the first thing. The second thing is that exploration is the most risky investment you can make. Uh, most of the big mining companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, in exploration and coming up with nothing quite often, zero. So it's a, it's a kind of uh, risk that most people are not able to take. And most people with money are not able to say, I want to put my money in exploration because they know that the chances of you coming up trumps are very, very low. But when you do come up trumps, the rewards are very, very rich. So the kind of money that can be attracted into exploration is one that's prepared to take that kind of risk. Mm. And, and not a lot of us uh, want to work with that fact. So in the end, <clears throat> Norman Bazima, who doesn't have any money, can go to the government and talk to them. And because there is no mine or anything like that, I can get an area to go and explore in many of the countries around Africa. When I really don't have the wherewithal to explore, I really don't have the money to explore, and I really do not have the technical ability to do so, which are the, the two things that governments have to look at in trying to work out whether to give a license for exploration to X or Y or Z. Uh, the second is some expectation that if you explore, uh, you will be having a mine tomorrow morning at eight. And, and, and there are many areas in some of the companies that I've worked for that were held for two decades before uh, a mine has appeared at the end of that. So all these things makes exploration um, unattractive for both parties, for the investor and for government. But it's crucial for us to continue to have a mining industry in the future. So we've got to make it a little bit more attractive. We've got to make it to the investor, yes, you can come and explore this, 
uh, and you should be able to tell us in X number of years what you found or not found. And if you haven't found anything or if you're unhappy and you leave, you must leave all your data behind so that the next person who comes can start where you left off rather than start afresh. Uh, and by the way, if you do find something, there are lots of rights that you have to realize value from your find and, and, and take it forward. And it's that kind of relationship, Sheila, that you're talking about that I think is crucial to bringing money into the exploration arena. Mm. Well, yeah, mm. anyone listening must be thinking that you and I have lost it because of course we started off by saying we talk about investor relations and look how far we've gone. <laughs> So just in case the listeners think Sheila's got it wrong this time, here's the point. The point I really wanted uh, the followers of the Sheila Kamen Strategy podcast to appreciate is that, you know, tangibly, it's investor relations. Materially, it is a complexity of issues which form the ecosystem of these relationships. They are difficult to disaggregate. Sometimes they are very difficult to comprehend even more difficult are uh, how to reconcile them in the face of very, very different uh, stakeholders and uh, different expectations. And when we rush to the conclusion that between governments and investors, there's a good and a bad guy. In truth, we do this complexity injustice. Norman, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. You've been very helpful. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Sheila. Thank you.